Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Now World. This is our third um, part uh, of our collaboration with Amnesty. This time we'll be speaking about technology and human rights. And um, I'm here with two amazing guests. So could you please maybe introduce yourselves? Well, hello. Thank you very much for, for having this opportunity. My name is Alvaro Carmona. I am the, the president of uh, an international NGO called Together International. And uh, I'm Charlie Fonda. I'm a second year university student uh, in The Hague, uh, and I'm a member of the Amnesty International The Hague Student Group. Great, awesome. Thank you guys so much for being here. Today, like I said, we'll be speaking about um, technology and human rights, um, and uh, we'll be speaking a little bit more about Together International, what it is, um, what is the organization, what does it do, um, and of course, uh, we'll be speaking a little bit about the war in Ukraine, in general, how technology can be used or misused. Um, in times of war and in general for human rights. So we'll be speaking about this um, extensively today. But first, before we dive into that topic, um, could you maybe introduce what Together International is? What is this organization? What, um, what kind of initiatives have you created? Um, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much, Elise. Uh, well, basically, we, um, the, the first words that, that, that can come to your mind when you, when, when you think of our organization should be um, unity, uh, help, uh, women, children, ecology. We're basically an international uh, NGO. Um, that we're based here in, in our headquarters are here in the in Hague, in, in the Netherlands. We're founded here, but uh, we are now present in around nine countries and we have projects in around 21 countries. We basically uh, try to follow the uh, United Nations 2030 agenda and uh, focusing in the, in the sustainable development goals that are the food security, education and ecology. Uh, sorry, food security, education and health. Um, we do have a, um, a strong uh, component uh, on principles, uh, trying to, to focus and trying to have a, a perspective um, on uh, trying to, to introduce this, this kind of, of, of perspective in all our, all our projects, which is uh, women, children and ecology. And um, uh, we basically have uh, development cooperation projects and uh, in those three big areas that I just mentioned. And uh, since last year, we also started having uh, humanitarian aid projects. Wow. That's in a nutshell is, is <laughs> what we have and what we do. Wow, that sounds amazing. And where have you been active in the world? We have been, uh, we do have development cooperation projects in around 21 countries, as, as wow. I mentioned. Here in, the, in Europe, we are in, um, in the Netherlands, in Spain, in Portugal and um, most recently in Poland and, and Ukraine. Mm. Um, in Africa, we are in uh, Uganda, in the Mozambique, in uh, South Africa. Uh, in South America, we have a project in El Salvador, in Chile, in Argentina, in Panama, <laughs> in Brazil. Wow. <laughs> um, in, the, um, yeah, in, the, in Asia, we are basically starting with Vietnam and um, Oceania. We have, um, we have some contacts and we, we are developing some, some activity with uh, with a foundation in, in Australia and, um, and Timor-Leste. Wow, um, we have contact with some other, in some other places, of course, but we couldn't really say that we have. Uh, it's, it's basically, we also try to follow uh, advices and one of the, the directives that you can also see in the United Nations, which is trying to establish as many partnerships as you can, because mm. that's the best way of, of, uh, of um, creating synergies and the best way of being effective in the field. No. So, yeah. Awesome. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. And what are some examples of, um, of projects that you have started in any place in general? How do you start a project like that and, and how have you gone about it? 
Well, uh, we, we do have us. Um, we are actually quite young because we, we, even though um, I will talk to later on you on about the origins and background and all that. Yeah. But if we're quite young, we started with the with the COVID actually. Oh, wow. um, so most of our projects started being uh, online and and and, and with. Uh, we were de developing them um, in the distance, but um, since we started being able to travel and everything, we've been implementing more and more of them mm -hmm. in, in the field. Um, we have in the development cooperation uh, area, we had those three big programs that actually relate to the three big development, uh, sustainable development goals that I mentioned. Uh, one is uh, with the food security, we have a program called Food for All. With the educational uh, educational area, we have one called uh, Education for All, and with the uh, health uh, area, we have uh, Health for All. So mm. you see, we were very creative, <laughs> but we started with the names. Um, in the um, in the food security area, what we have is two major projects. One is called Operation Kilo, that actually uh, mm. will, uh, maybe I will have the chance to talk about it a little yes, bit later, sure. because we're going to have a fifth Operation Kilo uh, now in at the beginning of June, uh, 30th of May, the first week of June. And what we do is actually we gather, we try to, to reach out to the, basically to the um, school community because we have, we like to actually have a lot of projects with them uh, also for an, uh, and for awareness uh, reasons and, and trying to, to mm -hmm. build some values. Um, we try to collaborate with as many entities as we can, companies, uh, institutions, uh, schools, universities, to try and have a big uh, food drive, to try to collect as much food as we can mm -hmm. in every municipality, in every uh, city, in every country where we are. And when we gather all that food, what we try to do is actually give it to a local beneficiary. Oh. Here in the Netherlands, we are collaborating with the Futsal Bank, with the, oh, yeah. Dutch, national, no, with the Dutch National Food Bank. And uh, we've been calling, this is the fifth campaign, as I say, so we've been giving them as much food as we can. Mm -hmm. And now they're actually very happy with us because they're in big need, as you can imagine, with the mm -hmm. latest situation. Their food um, supplies is, is as short as a lot. Mm -hmm. So... Um, that's one of the main, that's one of the flagship uh, activities and projects that we have, the Operation Kilo. It's called Operation Kilo because, as I said, we try to reach out to schools and it, it, it's something that is done extensively in many countries, the first time in Spain. And what it happens is that each student is asked to bring at least one kilo of food. Everybody okay. that wants to participate, mm. they bring one kilo of food. So it's super easy for parents and for anybody. Yeah. You don't have to donate money if you don't want. If you want to donate money as well, you can, of course. We're <laughs> more than happy to, to accept those kind of donations, of course, earmark. And, um, but if you want, you just tell your kid, listen, I'm giving you this kilo of rice, just put it in your backpack and just give it to, mm. to the person that is collaborating in the, in the school. Um, so that's why it's, uh, it's got a very important awareness component. Yeah. So we're very happy with that campaign. It's been working very well in many places and it's like our introduction, it's like, 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 a, like the, the one that's got more, the most visibility mm. when we try to reach out to schools and um, in, in some of the new, new, uh, new countries. Um, apart from that, we have a very ambitious project in the food security, which is called uh, the International Food Bank. And that project, is, we have a pilot project in El Salvador. We're actually trying to establish um, a real food bank because with Operation Kilo, we actually collect and, yeah. and help and we facilitate mm -hmm. um, the, um, an institution that is already established as a food bank or, um, or any other organization that is distributing, has the logistics in the field to be able to distribute the food. But we actually facilitate collecting the food. We are mm. not really distributing. Yeah, exactly. But in this case, in a place like El Salvador, where we don't really have that infrastructure, uh, we have a good um, godmother, uh, we call it a, a, this one for ambassadors in our, in our Together Ambassador program. Uh, she's the honorary consul of El Salvador here in the, in the Netherlands, it's called yeah. uh, Sonia Meyer. And uh, she's trying, she's very interested in giving us a hand and trying to, to develop this project in El Salvador. So we, through her um, 
work we're trying to actually establish um, the logistics to put a food bank there in San Salvador in the capital. Wow. As I say, it's a pilot project. We're going to try to replicate it probably in Lida, in Uganda. Mm. But uh, we're very happy because it's an ambitious project. We yeah. need a lot of support and um, we, we, I think we are, we are getting there. Yeah, well, um, so. so that's one. I'm trying to, to, to go to give a brief overview because we have a lot of things. And as I told you before we, we started <laughs> the podcast, I can speak for hours. So please feel free to cut me whenever you want. Um, so that's for the food security uh, mm. program area. For the educational area, it's quite interesting because we started with very humble projects small ones, as I said, we started online. Mm. And uh, now we're implementing many of those in the field. And our, our volunteers are actually quite happy that it's actually happening, it's becoming a reality. The, the most important one, I think, is uh, thanks to one of our sponsors, uh, Stepping Stones Daker, which is one of the here in The Hague, that uh, they had a good relationship in El Salvador with the, um, uh, with the rural community we're collaborating in, in Chilanga, in the mountains. And uh, we are, uh, his, well, his sp- this sponsor, uh, they are actually, um, uh, managing to 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 um, to um, assist and help students from this secondary school we're collaborating with to go to university. They wouldn't oh. have the means, and they have actually provided accommodation. They are hiring a, oh. um, a house there, provided accommodation and transport and some food for uh, nine students at the moment to be oh. able to be in a, in what is our first student's residence. Mm. Um, and then t- uh, it's working well this year and they got a plan, which is a five-year plan, mm. to be able to support these students and some more if they can uh, in the future. So it's a very nice project because it's, it's quite, uh, you can really see immediately uh, the impact of the project. Mm. Um, and still that gain us a lot of trust and confidence from with the, with the community and we have developed many more projects with them. Another one, which is called Solidarity Teachers, we started giving and providing support online lessons with volunteers that wanted to help, especially women, and especially uh, in the STEM subjects, in mm. the science subjects, yeah. to try and promote those uh, those kind of subjects and vocations, um, and languages. Okay, mm. so we have around yeah, we have many 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 volunteers now that are actually providing those online support lessons, mm. and now we're moving into the in-person phase. Many of wow. these volunteers want to go in their holidays mm. to these countries to be able to actually reinforce the staff um, that are actually um, providing and that are actually teaching the kids because in many of these schools they actually don't have enough teachers. Mm. Like in the Sabbath this year they just told us they don't have a math and science teacher, they didn't have the budget. Yeah. So some students are actually putting forward their, 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 uh, their interest in going there in their summer. and. Oh. Uh, yeah, we are working on how we can provide some accommodation, some uh, food, something mm-hmm. to make that possible and yeah. to make it easier for the volunteer, of course, because uh, awesome. it's costly. Um, some other projects is the STEM promotion project. We have a, an agreement with a scientific platform in, in, in South Spain that they are uh, trying to promote STEM um, subjects mm-hmm. among women, especially, and children um, through space sciences. So it's very interesting. I'm actually a passionate, a passionate of space. So this platform is actually in contact with NASA, with the European Space Agency, and they got lots of there's lots of educational resources when it comes to space science and all that. So the students love it because this this uh, they've been doing it online as well, and they got workshops, they got many activities for these students in these um, vulnerable communities, and uh, they have never had anything like this, and they really like it, and it really yeah. it really helps um, create. Uh, um, scientific vocations, and of, of, yeah, of course, wow. it's something quite, quite, quite nice to see. Um, some other ones is like an international forum, educational forum. We put together different teachers from different countries mm-hmm. for them to exchange uh, all the information they had about going back to school, 
uh, inside um, education uh, when the, everybody was operating after COVID. Mm. So it was interesting to see different protocols in the different educational communities in Chile, Salvador, Spain, uh, the Netherlands, and see how they can, they can learn from each other mm. and how they can actually benefit from, from, from each other. And that's more or less the basic ones we have for the education area. The last one, the, the health area, we do have a big, we had a big push when the, the Portuguese the volunteers uh, came into our structure because they're basically doctors and nurses oh, wow. and psychologists and they actually were the ones pushing for starting with the humanitarian aid mm -hmm. area and it was great to, to have them on board they, they have been the ones that have been growing the most mm -hmm. and um, they have promoted uh, a lot of very interesting projects like uh, we do have cooperation through them with some hospitals in the Haiti, in Equatorial Guinea and um, in Mozambique and uh, they, we had the chance of actually offering uh, the health workers uh, that are interested in going there to reinforce, the same we did with mm. the teachers, mm. to reinforce the staff in, in these countries uh, mm. when it's needed. And we're also trying to, to see what they can offer in uh, terms of accommodation, etc. Yeah. But it happens in many, as you can know, in many other NGOs do it as well. We're trying to actually promote that with those hospitals where we're also collaborating with um, another, project, another project called Health Equipment Recovery which is uh, basically trying to gather all the material that is obsolete from different clinics and yeah. hospitals. As I said, this is happening mainly in Portugal with the Portuguese uh, colleagues. And they have a warehouse where they're storing all these mm -hmm. obsolete material that is not broken, it's just obsolete because clinics yeah. and hospitals, they, they renew all this. Mm -hmm. um, and they can find, they find a sponsor to be able to put all that in a container and ship wow. it to these hospitals oh, we're working awesome. with. So that's really amazing. nice as well. Yeah. And now I go to the big one, and the one that I think is the one that everybody is, is waiting for waiting for this podcast, which is the humanitarian aid. Yeah. Um, we started like a year, year and a half ago, when the, we had the cyclone in Mozambique, in Beira, and uh, as I said, the colleagues from Portugal pushed to, to actually try to, to take some action, and then, uh, because some of them, they come from the United Nations, from OCHA, mm -hmm. they had that background, they knew how to organize a mission, so they did it quite professionally. I was very happy with the whole crisis uh, happening that they, they, they quickly into into motion and how the whole thing was structured and, and organized and um, we recently had this humanitarian mission to Ukraine mm. um, I believe um, well this it, is good to say that uh, it's been the, there's been a lot going on as you can imagine the conflict especially at the, at the very beginning as everybody is aware of it was very volatile it's changed quite a lot and quite quickly so we also had to adapt to that we had, um, uh, well, we actually had a whole mission to go to, uh, to, to, to Ukraine, to go to, to Lviv, to, to, to establish a small medical team there to, to start assisting. Mm. And due to the security situation, we had to redeploy the team in Poland, okay. in the border right. of Poland. Mm. So we actually had to, to start the mission there in the border with Poland. And um, having said that, we did a huge a collection all over the all over uh, the Netherlands, Spain, and Portugal, the mm. three countries where we are here. We collected a lot of medicines, uh, toiletries, uh, shelter equipment, um, clothes, as everybody did at that time. Everybody mm. was doing it. It was incredible. The the solidarity movement that you can find all mm. across Europe. Everybody they were, they were calling. They were ready to give a hand. They wanted mm. to be involved. Yeah. You were calling them and say, "Listen, do you have a warehouse? Because we need a hard warehouse. Do you have a transport? Because we need to transport, to transport from point A to point B." Everybody wanted to contribute. Yeah. So it worked quite well. We managed to put a lot of uh, effort into it. We managed to get a lot of uh, supplies that we took them to, uh, to 
to Poland and with a partner we managed to get it into Ukraine. Wow, so it was really, really interesting the way everybody, everything worked. It was really well done. And uh, we, on top of that, we managed to take a mission of, of volunteers going uh, from here, from the Netherlands. We went twice to the border, to the refugee centers um, in Femish. And uh, we were in Femish, we were in Kroshenko, mm -hmm. we were in Riesko. Um, please excuse my Polish because <laughs> it's complicated. I took a week to be able to learn these words. Uh, and, uh, and basically it was, um, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience. It was very, mm -hmm. it was quite an Im impacting to see how, how everything uh, can, how quickly can develop. As yeah. you know, this has been the quickest uh, refugee crisis since the World War II. Mm -hmm. Not only a big, huge one, but also the quickest. It was yeah. impressive how everybody was fleeing, uh, and how um, the social services were collapsed everywhere mm, mm. in the west of Ukraine, yeah. in Poland, in all the affecting, uh, affecting countries in Slovakia and Hungary. Mm. So it was great to see how many, um, how many NGOs were able to actually deploy quickly on the field. Yeah. It was interesting to see how the United Nations was able to coordinate all that as well inside mm. Ukraine and outside the, in Ukraine. They had to redo all the structure because they were actually present in the East, as you remember probably from yeah. the conflict that they had, they had in the East. But they actually had to reorganize everything and they were on the run the whole time at the beginning yeah. because they had to redeploy and, and everything. Yeah, um, and in Poland, we actually had, they had to start from scratch. So mm. it was interesting. All yeah, of that was, was, was quite interesting to see how they could organize quickly. Yeah, to be part of that as well. Yeah, that's crazy. And um, well, it's amazing to see how many projects you have all over the world and, and in which different sectors um, you're operating. It's, it's really impressive. And um, that makes me kind of wonder what is kind of the background of this organization? Like, how did you found this? Like, from what kind of thought or what feeling did you, did you decide, I want to do something with this and I want to found something, an organization like this? Yeah, um, well, basically, um, as I mentioned, we started with the COVID, but obviously the, the idea and the background and the, the urge to start something like this, it came much earlier, as you can imagine. Um, in my case, for instance, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't say I've been an activist all my life and I've been doing uh, things like this all my life and I'm mm -hmm. super savvy in what it is, humanitarian help and humanitarian mm -hmm. aid. No, not at all. I got my job and my, my life, but I've been always having uh, some kind of uh, vocation to be able to help. Mm. To help because it is true that uh, uh, even though um, General Saint, you are someone that I'm happy to to say that I'm someone that is actually knowledgeable that we are all very lucky. Mm. We are all extremely lucky, and when yeah. you travel a little bit, that's one of the things that you learn as well. You cannot imagine how lucky we are in terms of, uh, especially something that is quite interesting to, to to learn. When nothing happens to you, people don't realize that that's great. Yeah, when you are true. fine, when you are not sick and you are mm. fine, you say, oh, I'm bored and whatever. Yeah, but uh, you're not sick, you're fine. Yeah. You are not having a problem of, uh, with your work, you're fine then. Mm. You're not having a problem with your girlfriend, with your friends, with mm. your, you're fine then. Yeah. Um, because when you are not fine, you are actually all the time craving and trying to think of when you were fine. Yeah. So um, being fine is quite complicated to be able to think of those that are not fine. Mm. So, as I said, since I had some, some, some background before everything started, um, just since I was in school, um, we were actually having some... I was one of the first ones uh, um, in my... I was one of the first generations in my, in my school. I'm from Seville, 
and uh, we were actually one of the first generations that we were actually transitioning of not having the um, of having the ethics and this kind of civic uh, um, civic knowledge uh, subjects, you know, because mm, yeah, we were transitioning yeah. from having compulsory religion subjects oh, wow. to actually being able to actually have a more open mm. ed educational system. So with that, we did have some teachers that they were teaching us and they were showing us some things, some social work, some mm. uh, NGOs work. So that was interesting. I wouldn't say that that was something that completely marked uh, my personality, but it was something that uh, helped a lot to, mm. to create some awareness of what, what is uh, gratifying in yeah. terms of having some social values and some, having some, some uh, humanitarian values. So as I said, I was not uh, involved in all this uh, always all my life. But I've always had that kind of um, concern, let's mm. put it like that. Yeah. So later on in my life, I was actually working. To, um, I was actually working as well in the, in gender equality, mm. and uh, working especially especially in gender equality in sports. I was uh, mm -hmm. I was working uh, in a sport federation, um, in, and I managed to 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 start what it was the, the area of women and uh, sports in my federation. I was working in the. American Football International oh, Federation, wow. <laughs> and I was the chairman, the first chairman of the Women in American Football uh, mm. uh, Commission. And it was interesting to try when you are in a sports contact, uh, in, in a contact sport, sorry, in a contact sport, trying to promote uh, women's sport is uh, quite complicated, especially in some Imagine, countries. Yeah. And it was very gratifying when you were able to get that. Yeah. So later on, working also with some uh, some projects with the Spanish government in gender equality in sports, and also later on also through work working with the Red Cross. Uh, in some um, promoting the things, um, the promoting the awareness about uh, about um, human rights. Uh, well, all that uh, was in place. All that was uh, in my busy life. So mm. um, I've been also um, collaborating, like uh, being a member, just paying fee, but not much more in some NGOs, like mm. yes, the Children Amnesty International, oh, yeah. etc. But just like any other human being, any other citizen. Um, and then COVID came. And when COVID came, when COVID came, as I said before, I was completely fine. I was extremely fine mm -hmm. because we're here in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, note that uh, I am completely fine of everything that happened during that period here in the Netherlands and how it was dealt with, to be honest, but that's another subject. But I was uh, actually uh, outside in the countryside because we took some time to go outside and we rented a little place outside in the countryside. I was still working 100%. Mm -hmm. I was getting my salary. Yeah. I was with my family, nobody was sick. Um, I did have uh, a sense that uh, we were living in a different world because obviously yeah. everybody that is from the different countries where the population was he um, heavily affected, like Spain, like mm. Italy, like some other places that were not here, they had a whole different sense of what was going on. Yeah. And Spain was heavily affected, as you know. Still, we were very lucky because none of my family members, uh, direct family members, they were actually affected or uh, sick or dead. But I did have friends and we had people that were very, very affected. Mm -hmm. And then again, I was in contact, you know, through WhatsApp and through all this. And I was thinking, well, I might live in a different world, of was because yeah. uh, they were talking to me and, and telling me what, what a lockdown is and, and what, what, uh, what uh, people uh, with um, hospitals collapses. Mm -hmm. that, and it's not happening here and it's happening everywhere. Yeah. And then um, I realized that, uh, that little by little, uh, there was a lot of things going on in many places in the world and people were not aware of that here. And uh, I had a, my best friend was working in Panama. Mm. And Panama was just shut down when they have only uh, a few cases. 
because yeah. they knew their, their, their health system was not going to hold it. Mm. And uh, I had friends, as I said, of course, in Spain, in Italy, and in some other places, like Argentina, and uh, everybody was telling me about their experience about this COVID, and yeah. it was it was really, 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 they were really struggling. Yeah. So I was saying, I'm completely fine here, um, but I'm not fine. One of the first things that you you are, um, one of the first urges that I had is trying to actually uh, take leave in my work and uh, go to a hospital and say, okay, how can I help? Yeah. But the thing is that um, obviously you've got a family and obviously you don't want to do anything crazy when you have one, uh, some priorities and some, some priorities so on people that depend on you. So you say, okay, what can I do? Well, the least I can do is trying to help in some certain way, in a safe way, mm-hmm. with my phone and my computer. So I started like um, started a blog, then I started uh, contacting some friends. I contacted my best friends. I said that is in Panama, Pablo, and then we started trying to do a small projects what we could. Mm. Obviously, uh, during COVID, everybody can imagine that it was the best moment to start anything. <laughs> it was the best moment when you have all the time of the world because mm. if you had kids and you had um, teleschool and you had teleworking <laughs> and you were alone because uh, when you are an expat, you normally have your grandpas or your uncles yeah. when you are around. Um, it's complicated. It was a little bit complicated. It was a little bit tough. I can mm-hmm. say that uh, uh, if people don't believe in saints, I can tell you that they exist because my wife is one of those. And um, it's actually, it was heavy for us, but um, I managed to, to find the time when the kids were going to bed and before they were waking up. And it was, uh, it was complicated. It was easy. It was, it was a little bit, mm, it w- I had a little bit of help with the, with the fact that w- I was working with people that had different timetables and different time zones. Because then when everybody was sleeping here, they were awake in Panama. Mm, or they yeah. were awake in some <laughs> other place. So that was, that was actually a little bit of help. Um, so then I, yeah, as I said, I was adding people to the project, people that actually were also, it was super interesting to see how people wanted to help as well. Mm. Because one thing that you discover in this situation is that people that are having a bad time, they actually uh, want to do things like this because mm-hmm. helping other people help yourself as well. You help yeah. yourself with that. Mm-hmm. And some people were actually having a, a, a really very bad time and they wanted to have like a healing process as well. Mm-hmm. So they, um, as I said, a lot of people joined the project. A lot of people here in the ESPA community had contacts in some other countries that what we grew a lot at the beginning. People that wanted to help here, people that wanted to help there. We uh, managed to get in contact with someone, with Karen, that uh, was uh, um, she was super involved in the project since the, since the beginning, so she created the website, uh, mm-hmm. she was giving us a hand with communication, that was very important. We jumped from the blog to uh, the website and uh, to have a little bit more structure, we created a granigram. Um, and as I said, we started having people in Spain, in Portugal, in South Africa, and that's how we actually started, mm-hmm. trying to, out of uh, an urge to help a little bit in the situation, to help in what it was not just the medical situation, but what it was the social injustice that you knew was going to happen. Mm. Because obviously what we saw here, it was just a medical situation. But um, even here in our countries, mm, there was a lot of people that lost their jobs, a lot of people that actually had a hard time, a very hard time trying to cope with the whole situation, not from the medical point of view, but from the humanitarian point of view, mm. from the economic point of view, uh, from the psychological point of view, etc., etc. Um, and obviously that was here. In some other countries, it was completely devastated. Yeah. A lot of people, they didn't, they didn't have anything to eat. A lot of people, they have to jump and, and forget about curfews and lockdowns because they have to get out uh, to eat mm-hmm. and to, to manage to, to get some, some money. So out of that, it was the, 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 that, that's where, where the real urge came, trying to mm. 
to see that uh, in all these crises, the ones that suffer the most are the ones that are always the same, are the ones that have the less. So through that, we started growing little by little, and then the rest is uh, history, <laughs> <laughs> put it away. <laughs> exactly, wow, that's, that's amazing. And I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling of like, you know, we might have it bad, but we know that we're still privileged enough to be able to be safe and have enough food and have our family around. So I think it's, it's awesome that you, um, that you started this, especially in, in times during COVID. Um, and of course, well, today's theme is um, technology and, and human rights. And I mean, you've, you've explained very well what, have, what you have been doing, especially as well in, in Ukraine um, with the humanitarian aid. Um, and I think now more than ever, it's kind of the importance of, of information and the spread of information technology has become, has become clear. I mean, with Ukraine, we see it. Um, and we kind of depend on information to know what is up um, and to know how we can help. Um, but that also kind of creates the risk of uh, the spread of disinformation, of fake news, and kind of the misuse of that information. So can you maybe speak a little bit more about how can we prevent fake news from spreading and kind of increasing the accuracy with which we verify information, especially thinking about the war in Ukraine and uh, also other cases? Mm -hmm. Yeah, linking to what you just talked about uh, uh, during the pandemic because people were stuck at home, uh, uh, technology uh, started having even more of a prominent role in our everyday life. Uh, we started relying on social media for a lot of information. Uh, there was the Black Lives Matter movement uh, that had like its peak during uh, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and that really showed uh, uh, the use of social media also for good things like uh, activism and raising awareness. Um, but before uh, talking a bit more about the fake news and how how to go about authentication of content online, I think it's also important to define what online is and what human rights are and how are they sort of yeah. linked, <laughs> because for one sure. may also want why are they linked? Um, so when talking about digital technology, uh, what we mean mostly is digital domain, which can be seen with different layers. So of course, there's a physical layer, which is the actual computer, like the physical network components that we have. Um, and then we have the logical layer, which is more of the uh, software that we use. But we're not really uh, focusing on those when we talk about human rights. We focus more on the other two layers of uh, digital domains, which is the information layer, which is the content that is actually uploaded and shared uh, on digital platforms, and the social domain, which is us, the users, uh, the people who use uh, uh, the internet. Um, and uh, of course, in the digital domain, uh, there are several actors. Uh, it's not just us, the users, but of course, it's the uh, online platform from companies and of course also states uh, uh, in various ways that I'm not going to dig into right now because it would get a little too academic. Um, so this is uh, sort of what the internet is and what we mean by it. It's as the users and the content that is on the internet. Uh, human rights, of course, it's individuals' rights uh, and uh, they're supposed to be universal and uh, respected by states and by individuals. Uh, um, there can be, uh, they can be divided in two main categories. Uh, which I think is uh, something that is less known. Uh, one is the non-derogable rights, for example, the right to be free from torture. But then there are human rights that are derogable that states can interfere on uh, for matters of, for example, national security. And one of these is the right to privacy, mm -hmm. uh, which is particularly relevant when we talk about digital technology. 
Um, so, as we were saying, the bad and good things of uh, uh, digital technology with human rights, uh, uh, well, it's long lists, and definitely I'm not going <laughs> to give an exhaustive list today, because otherwise it would take hours, but a couple of, like, let's say, bad things, uh, bad ways in which uh, um, digital technology influences human rights, uh, well, as you said, of course, uh, the content that is uploaded sometimes is false or is misleading, and that's when misinformation comes in, uh, or when uh, your right to information is being uh, denied by your government which decides to own all the social platforms that are accessible in your country um, it can also uh, it can also be uh, used in a negative way against human rights when states uh, decide to use cybercrime frameworks uh, to suppress human rights. So, for example, uh, using the location of people that go to protest to go and, uh, and and track these people and arrest them or stop the protest uh, and things like that. And then, of course, uh, there's also relating to the right to privacy, bulk surveillance, um, which is also a topic that has been more talked about uh, during the pandemic and uh, sort of how transparent these companies are when yeah. they tell you, oh, your data is actually being seen by all of these other people and uh, all of these states can access what you post and what you think yeah. about and where you are at all times. Um, so these are sort of like the, <laughs> the worst uh, impacts of digital technology and human rights. Uh, and before like getting to how to tackle them, I think it's also important to recognize the good things about it. Because uh, uh, especially I think when talking about human rights, the focus is always on oh, how are they violated, how are states denying our human rights, which can be quite depressing and a little... Uh, intense at times, especially for people like activists, uh, like in your organization, of course, uh, or uh, people that work in international tribunals, uh, talking about human rights violations at the time can be a little exhausting. So it's also important to remind of the good parts of it. Um, so as we said before, social media activism is definitely uh, one of those. Uh, um, avoiding censorship, uh, because uh, if in a state there is still online platforms that are not government-owned, you can still uh, have somewhat of more freedom of expression than if you had to publish in a state-owned uh, newspaper. Um, then we also have social media as information providers. Um, and that's uh, why actually the war in Ukraine comes in also, yeah. uh, because uh, as you probably know, uh, most social networks, I think all of the Western social media uh, platforms have uh, banned uh, the users in Russia from using uh, the companies, uh, for example, Facebook or Instagram. and. Like on one hand, it can be seen as uh, like a form of boycotting Russia and be like, uh, like a message to the government and showing, look, we are denying our companies to enter your space. Uh, uh, you should probably do something about it. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to access Facebook anymore. Um, but then there's, of course, the other side of it, which is... Uh, much more important uh, for the Russian citizens is that now they almost have no way to access information that is not manipulated by the government because uh, now all the information they receive is propaganda through TV, through the state-owned radios, uh, state-owned newspapers. Uh, so, so yeah, um, that's uh, that, that's a challenge uh, when uh, when when this uh, sort of right to information is denied by companies that. Yeah, stop working in in a country. Another uh, good uh, good aspect of digital technology and human rights is uh, uh, providing digital evidence for especially international crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is also where the authentication part comes in uh, yeah. uh, of uh, information online. So there is this thing called open source intelligence. 
Friends, which I am a big fan of, because since I found out about it, I can't stop thinking about how interesting and how innovative it is. So um, digital evidence can be pretty much any content that you upload on the internet that is related, of course, to a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest organizations that works with digital uh, with digital evidence and yeah, open source intelligence is uh, Bellingcat. It's actually a Dutch organization. Uh, so what they do, they take uh, content that has been uploaded online. So that's why open source, because everyone can access to it. It's not a uh, person infiltrating in the government. It's mm-hmm. not espionage. It's content that is accessible to the average citizens that has yeah. access to the internet. And they uh, they try and authenticate it and see if they can use it as evidence for example, a state committing an international crime. So this is becoming very crucial in the war in Ukraine at the moment because it's used, well, first of all, to debunk uh, Russian yeah. propaganda. Because if Russia publishes a video and they say, oh, this happened this morning in Russia, look at these uh, Ukrainians committing war crimes on Russian mm-hmm. soldiers, well, that, that's actually a real event. That's what yeah. the Russia did at some point. But the associations like uh, Bellingcat, uh, they take the video footage, they cross-reference it, they use geolocation to identify um, maybe like an object on an intersection of a road mm-hmm. that it's seen in the footage to identify where this footage was taken and see, first of all, if the place exists and then if the place corresponds to what the Russians have said that, uh, that they said it was happening, but also the time. So uh, it's incredible, but there are like uh, apps and like, um, how do you say, like um, uh, programs for computers where from shadows of objects, you can determine almost exactly what day of the year oh, the photo wow. has yeah. been taken. Uh, you can see how the weather was on the day to make mm. sure it happened on that day. Like there's all these sort of hidden uh, um hidden clues in video footage and images yeah. that are being uploaded online, they can really help you authenticate it and confirm whether uh, something is a, an actual fact or a fake news. Um, and, and yeah, so this, uh, this open source intelligence can really, really help uh, uh, misinformation and the banking uh, propaganda of states that try yeah. to use digital technology to their advantage. Yeah. Um, and instead, yeah, you like first of all identify what is true and what is false, uh, and then using what is true as evidence sometimes for uh, war crimes, for yeah. example, uh, in international tribunals like the ICC. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, that's awesome, and that's I think a great way to tackle, I guess, the spread of disinformation and something that's I guess with technology or with stuff like social media and just technology spreading and becoming more important in our society. I think it's great that there's these new techniques that help you tackle it because it's definitely a huge danger but at the same time i think it sometimes remains hard like i it's at least in the in the case of uh russia ukraine spreading propaganda um i think i saw a few weeks ago i think i saw um a news article of of a video that was leaked by the russians um about Ukrainian soldiers abusing Russians or, or whatever, or at least some sort of crime that we're committing. And they were saying like it's it's kind of really hard to um, to confirm whether this is true or not, whether this is fake or not. So I guess there are a lot of uh, techniques you can use, but of course it's not really maybe um, it's not always a guarantee, I guess, to to know. So what are kind of some of the challenges that are faced or, or that this this kind of technology faces um, and, and what are some of the 
um, I guess, more difficult parts of using this technology in certain cases? Yeah, I mean, like, whenever we talk about content online, there are always, like, a lot of uh, issues regarding the reliability, you know, yeah. as you talk, like, and that can can be solved uh, depending on like like seeing who uploaded it for example or who mm. shared it because if it's for example Associated Press uh, that has posted a video that one of the reporters recorded on site uh, well Associated Press has like a clear record of like perfect uh, mm. <laughs> reporting on site uh, like they never shared anything that was fake or uh, misleading mm. so you can also really look at like for example when news agency has um, has uploaded the content, then of course there can also be reliable news agencies. To, you know, may get it wrong one time and accidentally share something that that's not actually accurate, uh, and that's where, like also like the um, the content moderation comes in. Uh, so a lot of uh, uh, digital platforms like Facebook have these mechanisms where uh, people can flag the content, especially if it's sensitive content. So like you said, uh, like a video of. Uh, soldiers being uh, killed or uh, tortured uh, or yeah whatnot and uh, and then it can be uh, reviewed more intensively and that's where like all this like more uh, sophisticated technology comes in to help authenticating um, but then of course like yeah it's both up to us as users uh, to kind of recognize what's fake and what's real um, and it also depends a lot on what your information diet is, in a sense. Mm. So it's very important, especially in the West, where we have this opportunity to not always rely on the same uh, yeah. newspaper agency or on the same uh, social media platform to get our information from, right? Because if I go on Facebook and I see this page that I follow uploading this photo of uh, uh, Russian soldiers being tortured by Ukrainians, uh, and I only see that, then I might think, okay, this happens. Yeah. but. I can also look at other a hundred yeah. uh, news agency. Uh, I can read newspapers. I can get information other ways, and that's why it's so important to diversify where you get your information from. Because then, if everyone starts uploading it, uh, it's more likely that it's not a fake news. Because news agencies do have all these mechanisms yeah. to authenticate uh, footage, to authenticate pictures. Uh, uh, because yeah, it's mm. you can't expect the normal citizens to go and do geolocation and cross-reference mm. uh, and trying to understand yeah. where a picture was taken. But most news agencies, especially the big ones like BBC, Al Jazeera, they do have that. So I guess it, yeah, like really being careful about your information diet and where you get yeah. your information from it's it's a key step to do that yeah i guess that's on an individual level what you can do to tackle i guess you know misinformation mm -hmm. yourself and kind of prevent yourself from falling into that rabbit hole i guess of, of propaganda what role do you think social media plays in this because of course i can imagine like speaking about the um open source uh verification that um stuff that is i guess accessible to all um can be used to um to authenticate or to provide evidence for certain things. So I can imagine that with the kind of the wake of social media and be more and more people engaging in social media, posting on social media, that could help uh, in a way this open source verification by, you know, simply there being more out there to look at. But is this the case or do you think maybe in certain ways it also makes it harder because there is more to look at and some of it might be harder to verify? 
Yeah, so so it's like a double sword, right? Yeah, exactly. So on one hand, you do have like this uh, massive amount of content you need to look through, but luckily, uh, social platforms are designed in ways where you can like search for keywords or um, filter your research, uh, and that makes it a little easier. Also, uh, on Google, you can, for example, upload a picture and uh, search for yeah. similar pictures mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, um, but sometimes it. You also need a little bit of luck in a sense. Mm-hmm. So, for example, talking about Bellingcat again, the association I was talking before, they became really famous uh, when uh, the MH17 case yeah. happened. So, the Malaysian air, uh, airline flight uh, that uh, was downed by a missile in Ukraine, um, and uh, Russians and other uh, media organizations. Uh, Basically, yeah, like a design, uh, the case as it was a missile that uh, the party from Ukraine uh, and uh, shot the passenger plane down and resulted in almost 200 deaths. Um, but of course, most people in the West did not buy that, uh, given yeah. uh, Russia's uh, history with fake information. Uh, and at the end, what, what they did to find out what actually happened is that uh, there was one person from Bellingcat uh, that put a notification alert on YouTube for whenever a video was uploaded that had some of the keywords that he put in as like the title of the video. One of these words was book, which is uh, the, the name of the missile that yeah. uh, was allegedly used to uh, shut down this plane. And then he had this strike of luck that at some point uh, a person uploaded his video because he realized that, so it was a video from the, the dash cam of his car, wow. uh, which is something that happens really often in uh, Eastern Europe because insurance companies uh, are oh, not yeah. working very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he was just looking back at his uh, footage from the dash cam of, uh, uh, of his car and realized that he had encountered some missiles uh, at some point on a road in Ukraine. Uh, sorry, in Russia, and uh, and he didn't think much of it until this uh, uh, event kind of reached a more global scale, and everyone's talking about this flight and what happened or not. So he uploaded this video, and then uh, um, but he uploaded this video, and this person from Bellingcat uh, just geolocated it, uh, looking at the name of the street and the intersections, looking on Google Maps, and kind of identify where it was, and then through the following weeks uh, they kept having this sort of uh, um, notification alert for these keywords throughout all social media mm-hmm. and then they started uh, seeing another footage there wow. an image there and they were able to retrace uh, the whole uh, uh, route of this convoy of missiles from Russia to Ukraine and then back. And then on the way back, one of the footage they saw is that one of the missiles had clearly been used. Wow. Uh, they recognize it from like uh, a little scratch that was present on the missile. So it's always like these little details yeah. uh, that really do the difference uh, on uh, on how you can use uh, how you can use this. Uh, this uh, online evidence yeah. but but of course as you said like there is a lot to look at sometimes things uh, uh, maybe are accidentally ignored uh, or maybe you can't like link them in the moment to what you're researching yeah. on so of course it's it's full of challenges but it has a lot of potential yeah and i guess it was especially in the case you were just describing i guess this person kind of depended on other people uploading this on internet in order to find out the whole route and that's kind of crazy to think that because of the internet we're able to to verify so much but at the same time people are able to spread misinformation very easily wow that's that's amazing i guess 
my next question is more so in general about because I think a lot of our listeners speaking as well from from all the work that you're doing um, are wondering what can we do to help um, the different causes be it you know tackle the spread of misinformation or help um, uh, verify evidence or whatever it might be to actually providing humanitarian help or um, you know on a small scale helping I think you're already um, kind of pointed out some ways in which people can contribute, for example, with the food uh, program or um, the one kilo um, food program, I guess. But what are what are ways that our listeners or anyone that's listening and thinking, hey, I would like to contribute somehow to this mission or somehow to, to one of the projects, what can they do? Well, in the case of organization, what they can do is actually uh, join us. <laughs> that, that's, that's the main thing. Um, yeah, of course, because I mean, we do, we do have um, uh, we do have this uh, this email where they can actually contact us or this um, telephone number. Uh, the email is info at uh, togetherinternational.eu. We didn't get the uh, .com. We got the got the <laughs> EU. EU. So Great. Info at togetherinternational.eu, and they can contact there. They can contact uh, they can contact us there and uh, get interested in, in, in our projects and uh, we'll be able to apply probably um, yeah, inviting them to, to a welcome meeting where they can talk to our HR officer and they can actually um, we can explain a little bit more in detail the different projects and they can decide where they want to join etc. Oh, the awesome. telephone number is uh, 0622-517746 that's of course in the Netherlands um, and basically what we have is the different projects that I explained before and also uh, we do have uh, the possibility as I explained of uh, having the experience of volunteering mm. uh, we have a volunteer program to go to the refugee centers in Poland at the moment and uh, we are working to see if we are going to actually do something in the IDPs in the generally displaced uh, people um, shelter centers that, that that's wow. how they call them in Ukraine but that's a more challenging project because yeah. obviously it's outside the EU you got insurances implicated etc etc yeah. but we do have at the moment running these uh, groups of volunteers that are going to the Polish refugee centers basically in Warsaw and, mm. and Krakow uh, because the the ones in the border they are, they are the situation is quite volatile some of mm. them actually the new strategy of the Polish government is trying to put them all in the biggest centers in the big cities. Mm. So the, the small ones by the border, depending on the flux of refugees, sometimes they don't have that many people. Okay. So we're trying to focus on the big ones. Um, and also, also the, we're also um, trying to, to expand these this volunteer um, programs uh, for, with, with the refugees to something that might be more stable. That, of course, as I said, people tend to forget many things in, with, with time. But we have uh, our international coordinator in the in this in this refugee program, uh, Carmen. She actually had a lot of experience with the refugees in Greece, because mm. people mm. remember there is a war yeah. in Syria, and there was a huge amount, a big mm. problem in 2015, 2016. But of course, that's like old water, or uh, past uh, bad times, or, or mm. whatever you want to call them. And basically, you still have people in Lesbos, in Kos, etc., mm. etc. Yeah. So we are also trying to 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 expand that that, that program uh, and trying to, to to assist there. And uh, yes, as I said, you just join us, you just uh, get in contact with us, try to find out exactly what we do, try to see what actually uh, where you feel more comfortable. And at the end of the day, uh, this has to be something that gives you, you not know, something that drains you, so something that is gratifying for you and something that uh, you feel that you want to contribute with your time. Yeah. As I said, we even have the possibility of some online projects, so you can spend awesome. some hours uh, from your house. Uh, giving mm -hmm. us a hand in the trying to to help uh, 
uh, kids and especially girls and in some other countries some people uh, need to to be like uh, certified teachers to do some things but some of the people actually are also helping with after-school activities mm, some yeah. we have a chess club that is uh, very willing to give a hand in Salvador so some wow, kids some can learn that you know so wow. something as fun as that and as simple as that and yeah. as easy as that so Great. you're more than welcome to join <laughs> all right we'll definitely have your uh, information linked as well so people can uh, can find it out perfect thanks and well that's great so join if you want um, <laughs> that's amazing and for you kind of what um what are ways that i guess we as i guess most listeners are social media users um and um i mean consume media as well how can we contribute to kind of an open, fair, transparent, I guess, spread of information and how can we tackle the spread of, of propaganda? You spoke a little bit about as well what kind of techniques we can use, but what are other ways that we contribute to this? Well, I, the easiest one is flag content that you see online. If you mm. see that it's uh, it's spreading misinformation or it's also inciting violence and all these kind of things, uh, both on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. Uh, there's always a three dots uh, at some point near yeah. the content where you can flag the content for misinformation, etc. The moment it always feels like maybe when you flag it, nothing happens. Uh, mm. uh, it it does happen actually. Either there's a human or there's an algorithm that kind of checks uh, uh, what has been published. Um, but also more concrete ways. Uh, so for Amnesty International, there's this website called uh, decoder.amnesty.org uh, where they have various initiatives uh, where uh, anyone with an, uh, internet uh, access uh, can contribute to, uh, where you can uh, be this sort of human uh, behind the flag content and kind of identify things. So it's not for social media platforms so much, but it's, for example, um, Amnesty uh, collects uh, tons of uh, satellite images uh, from war zones uh, of before and after maybe some event was happening. So for example, uh, for the Syrian civil war, they had uh, um, this, uh, this initiative where they put uh, uh, together um, images from and before, after, I think it was 2017. And then you as a human could flag whether in the previous image there was a house that maybe in the second one wasn't. And this was uh, to help Amnesty go through like this uh, immense list of material to identify where drone attacks might have happened and then wow. to have someone investigate a little deeper on that. And there's something similar happening for Ukraine specifically as well on the Bellingcat site. Uh, I don't remember the exact URL now, but uh, mm-hmm. if you go on the Bellingcat site, you find it. Um, and basically, there is this map where uh, they collect all the evidence uh, from social media or like open source intelligence uh, that is linked to potential war crimes uh, uh, in Ukraine. So, for example, if there is a picture of an hospital that has been bombarded uh, through geolocation on your own, you can identify whether the hospital is actually there because you can just Google the name of the hospital, check if it checks out uh, and see on Google Maps uh, if the hospital before uh, with the images from 2020, for example, if it was um, if, if it was still there or if it was already bombarded, uh, and you can sort of flag all this uh, content on your own. Uh, but also, more general, just yeah, be aware of misinformation in the internet and tell your family, like especially maybe older people that don't uh, have the, this much experience with social media, to not believe everything that's on the internet and be a little more 
mindful and using mm. a bit more of common sense uh, when uh, seeing information on the internet. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so there's both kind of practical ways that you can actually actively contribute, but as well by just engaging in, in social media and seeing if you know something is wrong, flagging it or reporting it, that, that also, of course, contributes a lot. Oh, that's, that's great. I think those are all amazing initiatives uh, and efforts that we can, can do. Some of them might be more low intensity, some of them might be um, a little bit more uh, intense. So I think that that's very, very good. And I think a lot of our listeners are probably uh, I think they think it's very helpful and that's that's amazing. Um, well, I guess uh, we kind of can round off a little bit. I think uh, we have spoken a lot of, about a lot of different projects. I think it's it's amazing to see what kind of initiatives have been created um, to help others uh, on a local level and on a global level. And that's that's really, really great to see. And as well, the different efforts and, and new techniques that are being developed in order to help this. Uh, and of course, like you, you have just mentioned, the ways that we can contribute um, as students, as citizens, um, as anyone that's listening. And that's, that's really great and very inspiring. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys have anything to add or anything you would like to, to um, maybe elaborate on if, if there's something. And otherwise, I think we can uh, conclude. <laughs> well, basically, I, I want to thank you guys for, for the visibility and for the opportunity to reach out to, to your community of and to, to, um, to spread the word. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that's thank great. You for being here. Yeah. <laughs> and no, my, my last thought just for anybody that is actually got some humanitarian uh, vocation or, um, uh, or they really want to, to help and they feel, um, they feel something gratifying for them and they feel comfortable doing that is um, just to bear in mind always that you have to think globally and act locally. That's the yeah. best and the most efficient mm -hmm. way of doing things. Yeah, and amazing. anything, every single, every single, um, every single gesture, every single piece of work, every single activity that you do counts. Everything mm -hmm. counts. Yeah. Because you add locally, little by little, you put all those p little pieces together, and you actually get something much bigger. Yeah, amazing. That's yeah, very. That's a, actually a very good point. I think a lot of people are often discouraged by, you know, oh, but would it really make a difference? It's just me. It's just one person. It's just one action. But like you said, I mean, all those actions combined can, can make a huge change. And that's actually a very, very good saying. Think globally, act locally. Amazing. <laughs> I think that's a great note to end it on. I want to thank you both so much for thank being you. here. It was very inspirational, very interesting. And uh, hopefully until sometime in the future. <laughs> thank right. you very much, Elise.